There was a time our happiness seemed never ending. I was so sure that where we were heading was right. Life was a road so certain and straight and unbending. Our little road with never a crossroad in sight. Back in the days when we spoke in civilized voices, women in white and sturdy young men at the oar. Back in the days when I let you make all my choices. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 16, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so we're down to the last matter of hours here where on Tuesday night you're going to be seeing the best songs cut from the best musicals sung by the best singers who never sang them at 54 Below. (laughs) You're all ready for it, Peter? I think so. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But um, I certainly have my opening and closing remarks. Uh, But uh, tomorrow and, of course, Tuesday we'll be uh, going through rehearsals and we'll see exactly how it plays out. But I'm optimistic. I think it's going to be a good show. So um, I'd love to see people there. I'd love to meet the people who have been writing me and answering trivia questions and all that. That'll be great fun. So um, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. Uh, Peter, I also noticed on Facebook you asked a very interesting question that uh, that I hadn't thought of in a min- many many a, a year. Uh, used to be that we had show jackets. Yeah. Uh, on you know Broadway casts would buy a show jacket. I mean the the uh, the Phantom Lily Miz, the Saigon jackets were you know coveted Grand Hotel jackets, things like that. Uh, have you had any good responses from people that are uh, saying why we don't do it anymore? Well, yeah, uh, the two that really um, were uh, of more than moderate interest to me. One, of course, was the fact that they got terribly expensive. But um, David Mitchell, our wonderful correspondent from Australia, uh, said that uh, simply those jackets, bomber jackets, as they were called, went out of style. It's that simple. And maybe that's the reason. But um, I remember coming back from uh, working on a TV series in Boston in 1984, and I was there for three months. When I came back, one of the first things I saw was a guy wearing a bomber jacket with the Nine logo on his back, and I really felt I was home. It was really such a welcoming sight because you didn't get that uh, where I was staying in Jamaica Plain, uh, Massachusetts. So (laughs) so under those circumstances, you know, it's always been a fond memory, and um, I'm sorry they disappeared. I also um, just mentioned on Facebook that when um, I helped uh, my friend Kevin McInerney to move once, um, my friend Howard Rogat also was there, and he showed up wearing his Jerry's Girls jacket uh, because he was connected with Jude Jamson, which had the show. And we called ourselves the Jerry Girls Mover all day long. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
you can't get that moving company anymore. I tell you, it was just that day. So one day, one night only. <laughs> Excellent. So if you are out there and listening and you have a story or an answer for the show jackets question, let us know as well, because I'd love to hear people's opinions on that because I hadn't really thought about it, but it used to be the mainstay in the 80s and 90s. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Everywhere you went in the, in the theater district, you saw great different show jackets. In fact, at the Easter Bonnet competition one year, there was yeah. even a number about it mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, the the essential lyric was that uh, you really didn't want to work um, on Broadway because it was too demanding, eight performances a week. And um, the lyric was, I don't want the sh- I don't want the show. I really couldn't hack it. I don't want the show. I just want the jacket. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it was that prevalent uh, that they were around. But uh, who knows where they are now? What can we say? Can we, uh, Gerard Ellis and Drini or Seth uh, <laughs> Lyric right. or something like that? Sure. Sounds like that. Uh, also, uh, just to remind our listeners, uh, this weekend we had uh, two other shows in our our podcast feed, uh, Jan Simpson's Stagecraft, where she talked to St- Simon Reed uh, from Private Peaceful. He uh, directed and adapted it, and Peter talked about it a couple weeks ago. And Matt Tamanini uh, spoke with Robert Cher- Fairchild about the uh, release of the American in Paris movie that's coming up. So uh, those are great interviews in our feed as well. So take a listen to those. Let's uh, jump into our reviews, where we'll start... Um, on the east side, 59 East 59, where Peter got to see Agnes. So, Peter, tell us about this play. Well, this is a very um, promising play uh, by a new playwright, or at least somebody uh, new to me. Her name is Katya McMullen, C-A-T-Y-A McMullen. And um, what she does is um, talk about uh, four people who – get together uh, in an apartment, and none of them is named Agnes. Uh, So who's Agnes? That's a hurricane. So it was really Uh, pretty um, involving to uh, see it during this time when certainly hurricanes have been in the news. So what has happened is the three people live together, and um, they have to take in uh, somebody who has really been affected by the hurricane. The problem is each of them has a history with this person and um, not very good history with these uh, with this uh, young woman uh, named Anna, who comes in like a ball of fire, confident as hell, and uh, really uh, doesn't mind that she's uh, upending the apple cart at all. So um, what what happens here, though, is that the woman who really doesn't want to see her anymore at all, at all, um, is uh, June, who um, has a romantic history with her, in fact. And now, of course, she has a new lover, and that's Elle, uh, a, a young woman who's uh, studying to be a doctor. And they've certainly had a uh, they certainly have a nice relationship, but it's, of course, threatened when the next lover comes into the fray. And um, certainly Anna isn't above seeming very flirtatious. She's not above walking around with very few clothes on to the point at which June even says to her, put on some clothes. You know, so, But then uh, June's brother, that's Charlie, um, is autistic and a virgin, and he sees this as um, Anna's coming there as an opportunity to uh, perhaps lose his virginity. And there's a very tender scene in which this um, is discussed, whether or not uh, she will give him 
um, shall we call it a mercy situation um, to keep the language uh, as clean as we possibly can. But um, will this happen or won't this happen? And how does June feel when she finds out that this has been at least on the table or shall we say on the bed um, of, of happening? So we have all these complications there. And then um, then there's Ronan, who's um, a, another of the roommates, and he's the one who actually brings Anna in. And um, you might say he's there for comic relief uh, because he certainly has a number of funny lines, a number of funny lines. So uh, we have here a play that uh, really shows tremendous potential, tremendous potential from this Katja McMullen. And um, I do believe that um, this is a good play for millennials to see because, indeed, uh, it has so many aspects of what's going on in the millennials' minds right now. So, And that's who these people are. So by all means, if you can get to Agnes, it's in this very small space of 59 is 59th. Uh, you sit on either side of the stage, um, much like a football field, a gridiron. Uh, you're on either side. There's only two rows, so there aren't many seats. It's general admission, first come, first serve. So if you want to have a, if you want to sit in the first row rather than the second, you should get there a little early. Um, 59 is 59th, of course, has three theaters uh, in operation at the moment. Uh, some shows start at on the hour. Some at, uh, on the quarter hour, and this one starts at um, half hour. So uh, it's uh, once again a very successful space uh, presenting a very successful play. So um, get to Agnes if you possibly can. All right. So uh, I'm excited to hear that because I've heard very good uh, word of mouth from Agnes from uh, a number of different sources. So we have to schedule that and get out to see that. Michael, you got to the Two River Theater Company in uh, Red Bank, New Jersey, to see Pamela's first musical. So tell us about this. Yes, a lot of uh, people seem to be making the trek, uh, which is not that bad. Um, it's oh, not at all. No, it's about an hour and a half on New Jersey Transit Train. You don't have to change trains uh, to Red Bank. And the theater itself is quite wonderful uh in terms of everything really sight lines accessibility amenities um it looks really nice modern theater um and this show has a uh, a history that is certainly drawing lots of attention because it's based on a children's book that was published originally in 1998 by Wendy Wasserstein with illustrations by Andrew Jackness. And uh, the book is about this young girl named Pamela who is as obsessed with the theater in general and musicals in particular, even though she has not seen one yet at, at the start of the events. Uh, she's just become obsessed with them through cast albums, uh, original cast albums, which she refers to correctly rather than soundtracks. Thank you uh -huh. very much. <laughs> um, and so she is now in incredibly excited because her Aunt Louise is going to take her to see her first Broadway musical. And um, that's what the, the show is about. It was uh, started, as I say, as a children's book, but then it was... Uh, the, the process began for it to be turned into a musical with a um, book by Wendy Wasserstein and music by Cy Coleman and lyrics by David Zippel. Uh, but that, uh, let's see uh, if we can get the history here. Um, 
The uh, oh, and of course, um, Cy Coleman and David Zippel had already worked together on City of Angels, so that there was that connection, and then they all um, were connected to Wendy Wasserstein. So it sounded at the time like it was going to be something really wonderful. Uh, the musical was originally scheduled to have its world premiere in 2005, but that production was canceled due to Coleman's death in 2004 and Wasserstein's illness, which led ultimately to her death in 2006. And so um, it uh, stopped for a while in terms of <laughs> obviously the, the writing. Um, and although a, uh, I guess a concert version was presented for as a one-night-only benefit for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS in 2008 at Town Hall, I believe. Um, and then after that, at some point, Christopher Durang became involved, and he has written a book uh, to, to the score. The score is really quite terrific, I would say, overall. Uh, both the the production numbers, the, the, the comedy numbers, the pattern numbers, and also um, uh, significantly two very uh, wonderful, heartfelt songs that come at the very end of the show. One is called It Started With a Dream, uh, and the other is called You Make Me Proud. Uh, you Make Me Proud is a song sung by Pamela's father to her. Uh, uh, he's a single dad, by the way. Pamela's mother is deceased. But uh, that's why this wonderful aunt, her wonderful aunt Louise, is bringing her and to <laughs> to New York to introduce her to this incredible, wonderful world of the Broadway musical. Um, I think this production, this current production of Two River is is really excellent, uh, sparked by a, a remarkable performance by young Sarah McKinley Austin as Pamela and the wonderful Carolee Carmelo as Aunt Louise. Um, and uh, Pamela's dad, is played by Howard McGillan, and we also have uh, David Garrison in the in the cast, and Andrea Burns, all doing really marvelous work uh, as various other characters. I uh, m my reaction to it overall, and and for what it's worth, two other friends who saw the show agree with me, is that the <clears throat> score is quite a lot better than the book. Uh, um, uh, certainly there are very, very funny ideas in the book as, uh, is, as is what, what you usually get from Christopher Durang, kind of off the wall humor and lots of, um, satirical spoofy theater references. Um, but I think that, um, the book could use a little more focus. Maybe if he could work on it more, we, we might get a, a more cohesive piece altogether. Uh, and I think it's worth it because um, Cy Coleman was, was one of the greats. And first of all, just to have this score survive and thrive would be really wonderful. He, um, he did have a, a, a great partnership with David Zippel, aside from the, the many other lyricists with whom Cy worked over the years, uh, many of whom were women. But mm -hmm. uh, yes, but David and Cy, they really had, um, they really seemed to have simpatico when they worked together. And there's, um, there's a lot of really terrific stuff in the show. I, um, Peter, how well do you know it? The actual book? 
uh, or the, the the score. Uh, I don't know if you had heard no, it. not at all. Uh, yeah. Just that uh, dream song that you mentioned mm-hmm. because um, it it, it uh, did get a recording. I think maybe on a Bruce Kimmel album. Yeah, Lilius White. Um, that what it was. I, I believe recorded it and has sung it. Uh, I think I've seen her sing it live on more than one occasion. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's. I'm particularly uh, interested in how uh, Peter and our listeners will react to his song. Uh, there's a song sung by a theater critic, and uh-huh. it's and it's called. The title of the song is "I Know What I Like," but it's basically about how he hates everything. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> and uh, David Zippel really. Um, pulls out all the stops in in this incredibly funny list of everything that this guy hates and why he hates it. And, you know, on one level, I, I guess I, I sort of um, maybe was mildly disturbed by by the lyric because it, it's certainly not a positive uh, portrayal of mm-hmm. theater critics. But it's so over the top that it's uh, that it's I think it's maybe pretty harmless for that reason he even says at one point uh the critic is singing a patter song and then he sings about how he hates patter songs so it's that <laughs> kind of humor very meta uh, and so does he mention specific shows oh yes absolutely uh-huh. okay. yeah i mean for example one of the shows he mentions hating is oklahoma so i thought oh well you know come on but then i i you know it became obvious that it's it's not it's, you're not supposed to necessarily realistically believe he hates everything. It's just that that's the comic point of this song. So um, it's 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 a funny one. It really really is. And uh, Two River does great productions. They seem to have uh, they seem to have um, lots of money. Uh, they seem to spend the money they need to on their shows. In this case, uh, I, I did think the cast could have been larger, but I don't. Um, know if that was a budgetary consideration so much as logistics. Um, so um, I think we will, I hope that we will see this show again, uh, perhaps with some more work on Christopher Durang's part. Uh, it, it only opened uh, uh, just recently on the 14th. So if, if you uh, start looking now, you may be able to find some uh, coverage and reviews of it from various sources. Michael, is it a Broadway show or an off-Broadway show? Well, what does that mean anymore? You know, hmm. I mean, we were just discussing that the the uh, if if broad if off-Broadway were still economically viable for new uh, musicals, and if it is, uh, then I would say it's an off-Broadway show. It has a wonderful intimacy about it. Although, on the other hand. Um, there is not that much ensemble in it, but they are recreating the theater world. And so it, it, it can be done bigger, I think, without losing its heart. So I guess that's not an answer to your question. but <laughs> No, and I, I, and I understand what you mean about the fact that commercial off-Broadway is a, a very dicey proposition now and, uh, and has been for a while. But still, um, we often hear when shows open, gee, it really belongs off-Broadway. Um, I heard it just recently about a musical that uh, was on Broadway. So, um, and, um, we'll be be closing today, in fact. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's why I asked the question, whether or not it's economically viable in terms of aesthetics, is it a Broadway show or an off-Broadway show? Well, I would say, yes, that there are uh, a lot of inside references, uh, but mostly to famous shows. Uh, One, one of the big targets is the sound of music. 
So I don't think you know it would be a problem in that sense. This might be a perfect show for a place like Manhattan Theater Club or The Roundabout. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. to give it that kind of a start, and then if it does catch on, it could uh, it could go on further. One thing I definitely want to say is it's certainly not uh, in any way for kids only. It's very much a family show. The um, there is only the one character who is an actual child. and everyone else is well pretty much everyone else is uh, played by adults and and most of the characters are adults so there will be no problem with uh families attending and with the adults being bored not by any means well i haven't read the book in a long 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 time uh i loved it and i loved the illustration of, of 45th street uh, and wendy i remember telling me <clears throat> her favorite part of it was one of the uh, quotations that was blazoned above a theater was i loved it john simon you know because of course john simon rarely said i loved it about anything so um but what i don't remember and i wonder if this is something that's been added and if so it's very clever i don't remember the girl having a knowledge of a original cast albums uh, or have listened to them before uh, she went to the show. I thought it was um, just a, 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 a fresh experience for her. Now, I could be misremembering, believe me. Uh, would you say 1998? Wow, it's really been 20 years since I read that book. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, if if that's the case, that they've added that element, I think that's very, very smart uh, to have her be interested before she even goes. So, I mean, that makes the anticipation that much greater. So, uh, so that's I, what I get. Yeah, I suspect it may have been added. Obviously, uh, a, a lot has been added by yeah, it has to be, sure. because the book is is um, one of those children's books that's largely illustrations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is text, obviously, but there's not that much text. Uh, this show opens. One of the funniest moments is that Pamela is alone in her room pretending to accept a Tony Award. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then she says at one point she says and I, I love blah 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 and I, I love theater and I love and I love musicals even though I've never seen one and then mm-hmm. she that's where the cast albums come up and I thought well good for you girl <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree I agree so um, uh, Wendy Wasserstein had uh, long time relationships with uh, Playwrights Horizons and Lincoln Center uh, perhaps those yes. are organizations as well that that could, uh, you know, put this in an off-Broadway or a Broadway house. Ah, good point. What a nice show for the new house, perhaps. You know, that's – and certainly Andre Bishop, who is such an important building block in Wendy's career. uh, It would be something – a nice way, uh, a nice tribute. And um, I do believe her last play was um, in the new house. So so it might – um, be a nice thing for there. So we'll see what happens. I do I want to say again, it, it it needs work to quote uh, yeah. <laughs> David Zippel, uh, Zippel line yeah. from, uh, from another show. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, I think that, you know, it could be done. I, I just really, uh, Chris, uh, if you could get in there and kind of focus a little. And uh, Oh, and interestingly enough, um, I saw this show just yesterday. Uh, Friends of mine saw it last week, I guess maybe one of the first performances, and um, and then we were talking with one of the cast afterwards, and uh, they did make apparently significant uh, – small but significant cuts even within that week. So um, – and I was told by the friend who saw it tw- twice that the second time was sharper and more focused. So they definitely realized that's uh, something that needs to be done and moving in the right direction. In fact, what is the running time? 
Uh, 90 minutes, no intermission. Good. All right. So uh, that is Pamela's first musical at Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, which is easily accessible by New Jersey Transit to Red Bank directly from Penn Station. It's running through October 7th, and... What a creative team. What a cast. I hope that this is not the last we hear of this. And I'm terribly sorry, but I did not mention directed and choreographed by Graciela Daniele. So they really got uh, top flight people to work on this uh, on stage and off. And it's definitely worth your attention. Okay, Michael and Peter both got a chance to see 54 Sings Golden Rainbow at Feinstein's 54 Below on September 11th. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start us off with uh, Golden Rainbow? Well, this may surprise a number of people, but uh, I have to admit that even though I was certainly paying attention to Broadway musicals in 1968, I never saw Golden Rainbow. And um, part of the reason was that uh, the word in Philadelphia was so poisonous and um, it seemed to be a vehicle simply to show off Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. And so I I, I viewed it with that that suspicion. And so I I, I just it it was like beneath me, it seemed to me to um, to feel that way. And when the album came out, I didn't get it immediately took me a long time to get it. Um, We all have shows like this that uh, rub us the wrong way for one reason or another. So uh, when the album came out, well, okay. Um, I I will say that um, I love the song uh, for once in your life. And I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's interested in Broadway musicals, especially of that period who doesn't like that song, but uh, you know, I, it, uh, I played a few times, and that was the end of it. So, so this was almost a rediscovery for me. And what really impressed me this time around was how well Walter Marks wrote for his two stars. That he really knew what type of song Steve Lawrence could sing well, and what type of song Edie Gourmet could sing well. So the show takes place in Las Vegas. It originally took place in Miami when the play was called A Hole in the Head, and it was about. Um, a, a single father who was raising his son and in Las Vegas, not the greatest environment to raise a kid. And the kid's um, approaching teenage years now. And um, people are getting a little concerned uh, because, indeed, uh, the father is an inveterate gambler and uh, he, he he runs um, a nightclub. Uh, and uh, this just isn't such a good environment for a kid. So in the original play... Uh, we had um, an aunt and uncle show up uh, saying, we want to take the kid away from you. He'll, we'll give him a better upbringing. And uh, in the musical, uh, they disappeared. And it was Edie Gourmet who, who played uh, an ex-girlfriend of uh, our hero, Larry, uh, anti-hero perhaps, uh, Larry. And she wants to take the kid away. Now, uh, we often mention William Goldman's book, The Season. And this show was actually in that season, 1967-68 season, which he wrote about extensively. And one of the points that he made, Goldman made, was that um, you couldn't really believe that um, that a woman who's a working woman would actually um, take away a kid from a father saying, you're not going to do a better job because you work. I mean, it's different in the play where you have two elderly people who are going to concentrate on this boy and give him everything he needs, but a, a single mother couldn't. So, uh, but as time has gone on, uh, we have found that there have been plenty of single mothers who've made it work. So in that sense, um, the show is a little more valid now than it was back then. Well, anyway, 
anyway, n- not much of this came up because, of course, the concerts that are at 54 Below are basically concerts, a little bit of um, filler material here and there, um, that uh, very much abridged by uh, Rob Schneider, who does a, a phenomenal job um, in making sure that these shows are cut down, that the, the book, which is often considered um, the, the liability in so many musical uh, musicals, uh, that indeed um, it, it, uh, it's better to do uh, fewer than um, <laughs> fewer book than um, less book, I should say, than um, than more. So it, uh, the uh, the um, the uh, music and, and the uh, lyrics are the thing. So uh, what he did have, though, was uh, Robert L. Friedman, um, who um, I'm happy to say um, is uh, a Tony winner for writing the book to uh, Gentleman's Guide. Uh, to Love and Murder, uh, doing the narration. And he did a very nice job. And um, we really had a very uh, (laughs) galvanizing experience because uh, Debbie Gravett uh, was playing the Edie Gourmet part. Now, what's interesting about that is some years ago, Scott Whitman, long before Hairspray, at La Mama, of all places, did an abridged version of Golden Rainbow in which Debbie Gravett uh, played the Edie Gourmet Gourmet part then uh, with her husband, Bo Gravett. This time she didn't do it with her husband. This time she did it with Stephen Edie's kid. Yes, um, David Lawrence um, played his father's part and uh, did a nifty job. I have to say, you know, I, I, I don't think he particularly resembles either one of them. But uh, anyway, he is their biological child and, and to the point at which I did check. But anyway, he did a very nice job, too. And it was basically um, them um, and no one else. I mean, Richard Kind was there to do a song um, called um, All You've Got Is Good Taste, in which Walter Marx wrote some new lyrics. And I'm very surprised that um, he rhymed marble with horrible, given the fact that uh, Bob Merrill did that many years ago um, when he wrote um, uh, If a Girl Isn't Pretty in Funny Girl. So um, it wasn't quite the entire show, and uh, one of the great lyrics in the show um, was missed by not doing the Desert Moon sequence, but uh, the, most of the songs were there and um, and really – pointed out, as I said earlier, that Walter Marx really knew what to do for these people. He was there. And I went up to him after and I said, you know, it's really great that uh, you were able to write for those people. He said, well, you know, it's easier when you know who you're writing for. It probably is. But so many times I have seen stars in shows where people knew they were going to, the writers knew they were going to have these stars and they couldn't do as good a job in really tying into what uh, was going on here. Now, of course, the famous song from the show is I've Got to Be Me, uh, which Steve Lawrence um, sang at the end of the first act of uh, Golden Rainbow. But But what was really sad was the fact that this song only became well-known in the public consciousness years after the show closed. Sammy Davis did a recording of it that really did extraordinarily well, even in the rock era. It it, it charted and charted pretty high. But uh, what a shame that it couldn't have uh, happened back then uh, because it would have uh, certainly been wonderful um, exposure for the show and maybe more people would have gone. I also wonder... I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when uh, certain news was delivered to Stephen Eady that the show was moving because they were at the Schubert Theater, the flagship house. Schubert's one of the best 
places to see um, the visibility of a show, that wonderful sign out front. It's at Schubert Alley, so you can really see what's going on there. The visibility is great. And then during the run, David Merrick wanted the Schubert for Promises, Promises. And uh, the Schubert said, oh, yes, David, uh, we'd love to have Promises, Promises. And so they threw out Golden Rainbow, which went to the 54th Street Theater. Now, granted, Steve Lawrence had been there before with his show, What Makes Sammy Run? But that was really off the beaten track. That was considered one of the least desirable houses in the Broadway um, theater district. So I, I would love to have known what happened when they said um, to them, okay, we're moving and we're moving to the 54th street. Did Steve Lawrence say, Oh, there's no place like home or what the 54th street. Are you kidding me? So um, golden rainbow stayed around for about nine months. And um, I guess really now that I think of it uh, closer to um, 11 months, but anyway, it, uh, it certainly lost money, and it certainly wasn't uh, something that uh, became part of the canon. Um, I've never been offered a production um, since <laughs> it closed, so this I uh, wasn't going to miss this one. And, um, and you know, the score holds up, and um, I came home and I played the album for the first time in a long time. <laughs> All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the point has been re- made recently that I've got to be me, I, I believe could be classified as the last non-rock song that became a, a a chart hit, a big chart hit from a Broadway musical, because the other ones, I guess, around that time would have been uh, Hair and then uh, Day by Day from Godspell. So, I mean, you know, of course, it depends on how exactly you define pop and rock but it it certainly was uh one of the last old style songs to really really hit the charts and as peter said it was a huge hit for sammy davis jr um i was also thinking recently that you know it's it's such an amazing resource if you spend a lot of time at feinstein's 54 below uh, they they tend to do at least two, usually three shows a night, and sometimes there are three different shows a night. Uh, if you go, if you make it your point to get there, uh, whether to see solo shows, duet shows, group shows, or these concert, little concert versions of musicals, it seems to me like in uh, in a year's time, you're going to hear a huge percentage uh, of the. Uh, the total amount of material that has been written for Broadway, because between uh, all of those different types of shows that I mentioned and, and, and also um, cult hits and, and material that has been cut from shows as is going to be the case in Peter's upcoming show. So it's uh, really, when you add it all up, it's quite phenomenal. The, the, uh, the output there Uh, and, to see a, a very, very relatively obscure show like this one is uh, in a way, of course, more special than seeing one of their many iterations of 1776, for example, which is great on another level. But um, yeah, I, I didn't really know this show. I have the album and I enjoy it a lot. I uh, had had not seen a production. Uh, the book, which we didn't get to hear any of it at 54 Below, was by Ernest Kinoy. And there is a movie of uh, A Hole in the Head that followed the the play um, more closely. But that's that's quite 
different in, in terms of uh, some of the characters. As Peter also mentioned, the movie has Frank Sinatra and Edward G. Robinson. And uh, the um, – oh, a, a significant point about the musical is that – uh, yes, it, it's true that Judy Harris is an ex-girlfriend of Larry Davis, but she is also um, the aunt of Larry's son, Allie, because uh, then what happened in the musical, anyway, is that Larry wound up marrying Judy's sister, who is now deceased. Um, so that's another – that's the second show we've just talked about with a single-parent uh, family. Um, and Allie at uh, – 54 Below Concert was re- very well sung. His uh, his few numbers were sung by Jonah Halperin, uh, who has been in Kinky Boots and Matilda. And yes, Richard Kind did a fantastic job with uh, that one song of this guy, Lou Garrity, uh, and uh, this uh, Las Vegas type muckety muck. Uh, but yeah, but the show was and always will be a vehicle for Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. So it was great to have Debbie do it because she's so fantastic at channeling Edie Gourmet, as she proved in the past. And David Lawrence uh, apparently is primarily a film composer and arranger, not uh, a performer. Uh, And considering that, especially he did quite a wonderful job. Uh, He seemed maybe a little nervous. I saw the uh, 7 p.m. show and I believe Peter saw the the 9:30. I, I don't know if uh, uh, someone said who saw both uh, told me that uh, that David seemed a little more comfortable during the second one. But even during the first one, he was he was really very charming. And um, I think vocally, his the timbre of his voice is quite different from that of his late father. Uh, not his late father. Excuse me. Steve Lawrence is still with us. Oh, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but. Um, uh, yeah, David seems more of a tenor to me, where uh, as uh, Steve sounds like more of a baritone. But uh, but I have to disagree on the physical resemblance. I think David Lawrence look, looks a lot like his dad, um, for what's that worth. And um, the numbers, uh, aside from the big hit, yeah, there there are some really terrific ones. The the establishing number for Judy is a terrific song called He Needs Me Now uh, in reference to young Allie. Uh, she thinks she has to come in and, you know, whisk him back to New Jersey and take him away from this Sin City life in Las Vegas that he's leading with his father, who really loves him, but is not a very responsible person. Um, and then Larry and uh, Ali, his son, have a really charming song called We Got Us. Uh, Peter mentioned For Once in Your Life, terrific song. And the title song um, was also a, a, a fairly big hit at the time uh, that the show came out. And uh, one person it was a hit for is Marilyn May. Uh, at the time, uh, as, as we've discussed many times in the past, uh, pop artists went to Broadway to look for the, the next best thing. And, and often, uh, almost always, I think that songs would be recorded and released before the shows actually open. So that's what happened with, uh, with Marilyn and Golden Rainbow when she had a hit with that. Um, I was really, really glad to be at Feinstein's 54 Below for this because it's it's quite a curiosity. And I, you know, as many of us who were in the audience there said, I, I think it, the score compares favorably with a, a lot of scores that have been written since then, even though at the time, I think it was really looked down on as just a vehicle for this 
fabulous uh, <laughs> husband and wife team of, of Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. The irony is that um, there wasn't nearly as much of a demand for tickets as there was in Philadelphia. Uh, Josh Ellis, our, our friend who uh, grew up in Philadelphia, said that uh, the Forest Theater was sold out <laughs> in an, an astonishingly short period of time. Everybody wanted to see Stephen Eady. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, that was a one-night-only thing at 54 Below, uh, where 54 sings Golden Rainbow. But I'll have a link to that in the show notes, and uh, if you'd like to go back and check it out. Um, Peter, you got over to Hunter Theater, uh, where the Hunter Theater Project presented Uncle Vanya at the Frederick Lowe Theater. So tell us about that. Why is it whenever I hear the words Uncle Vanya, I immediately start thinking, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. Um, it, it, it just scans so perfectly with Oklahoma. <laughs> but anyway, um, Uncle Vanya, of course, is uh, by Chekhov, but this one uh, is an adaptation, and it is an adaptation, not just a translation, um, by Richard Nelson. How do we know that it's not just a translation? Because one character that's reasonably famous from the original play, Waffles, as he's called, because his skin um, has been subject to acne when he was a kid, I guess, um, is not in it at all. So this is um, a play where uh, we have two, four, six, seven characters from the original play. And uh, Richard Nelson, of course, in the last few years have done the Apple plays down at the Public Theater. They worked out very, very nicely. And one of the, the trademarks of this is that people were speaking in normal conversational tones. If Ethel Merman were alive today, she would not be welcome in an Apple play because, as the famous line goes, that you better have good lyrics because the person in the last row of the balcony will hear it. Well, the, luckily, these plays are being done in small spaces because you wouldn't be able to hear them if indeed um, they were in a big house. Now, to compensate for this, if you saw the Apple plays, you may recall that there were microphones hanging from the ceiling. They're here, too. Twelve microphones are hanging from the ceiling so that you can hear every word, and you do. So Uncle Vanya is um, a show that somehow reminds me of a song in the Grass Harp, because in the Grass Harp, there's a song um, in which um, a maid sings to uh, the sister of uh, an entrepreneur that um, if you tend to a house, that house is yours, whether or not you own it, because you have tended to it. You may believe that, you may not, but that's the philosophy there. And that sort of happens in Uncle Vanya, too, because Uncle Vanya has been watching this estate for years and years and years of um, a man who's now going to sell it. That's what he's going to do. And as a result, what's going to happen to Vanya? And he really feels that he's being betrayed, that the estate is going to be sold. Will it be sold? Won't it be sold? Well, that's what uh, much of the play deals with. Of course, um, the, 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 the owner is a, a professor who's no spring chicken, but he's married one. Um, he's married to a much younger woman, Yelena, and uh, why such a young woman would um, hook up with uh, an older professor, uh, well, that certainly comes out into play as well. So uh, Vanya is the brother of the professor's uh, deceased first wife. 
so um, and um, in so many Chekhov plays, it's all about uh, people being in love with the wrong people that um, nobody here knows that the best secret to success when it comes to romance is to give yourself to the highest bidder because the person who loves you the most is the person who's going to make you happy in the long run. Nobody ever seems to understand this in a Chekhov play. So there's a lot of unrequited love that goes on here. So. It's a terrific cast, but as um, a veteran of the Apple plays, J.O. Sanders playing Vanya is truly extraordinary, especially when he finds out that the estate is going to be sold. He uh, tries to bear it with good grace for a few seconds. He doesn't feel that way, but he's trying to be as good as he possibly can. And um, finally, there's the eruption that has to happen. And he's brilliant in the way that he um, carefully calibrates exactly how this is going to happen. It's uh, an astonishingly human performance. But um, um, Elena, the stepmother by Celeste Arias, is very, very good, too. And um, Alice Cannon... Uh, as the Maria, the grandmother, excellent as well. So, um, and then of course there's Sonia, the professor's daughter, um, by his first wife, uh, who's also worked to keep the estate going. So needless to say, she has a lot of feelings about this, um, as well as feelings for Dr. Astroff, who has no clue that um, she has these feelings for him. So um, it's done very, very smoothly, very quickly. Uh, the adaptation is um, a little more than an hour and a half, I think. And um, it goes by pretty quickly. But the humanity um, of these Richard Nelson adaptations and uh, the fact that you really feel like you're a silent partner in the proceedings, that you're actually sitting at the table. You just don't have anything to say. You're just so mesmerized by listening. But you really do feel like you're you're a, a, a silent partner in the action. And that's one of the extraordinary things about what Richard Nelson's doing. And I think he has really found his own genre. And I, I, I look forward to seeing many more plays done in this style that he either adapts or directs. It's fine with me because he's doing extraordinary work. All right. So that is um, Uncle Vanya at the Hunter Theater Project at the uh, Frederick Lowe Theater. It's on Park Avenue and it's playing through October 14th. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, on Saturday evening, I got a chance to get over to the Babylon Village and see Peter and the Star Catcher at the Argyle Theater, which uh, all three of us have talked about the Argyle Theater in the past. Uh, new theater, uh, Evan Pappas, the artistic director, and uh, doing, some, doing some very interesting things. They started with Guys and Dolls, and then they uh, had a Hairspray production that all three of us reviewed, and they're doing Peter and the Star Catcher, and it was... Uh, pretty surprising to me because uh, for a new theater company to pull out Peter and the Starcatcher in the initial season, it could be really amazing. It could be a total train wreck. And, uh, and audiences that are, uh, you know, not traditional uh, theater-going audiences, uh, if you're pulling in the local theater, uh, the local uh, crowds, they might be looking forward to be seeing the uh, standard fare, the uh, Hello Dollies and the Guys and Dolls and the uh, Oklahomas and Carousels and things like that. But they took a chance on Peter and the Star Catcher, and they passed with flying colors. This is a very, very good production. Uh, and if you do have the opportunity, I say get on a train and get out to the Babylon Village to see it. Um, the, the cast is really wonderful, again, with a mix of uh, probably 75% non-equity and 25% equity players. Um, 
and you could not, you know, you'd really have to look at the the playbill to see which of the members are equity and which are not, because this is a an outstanding production. Uh, I wanted to point out uh, three of the uh, actors, Raji Asan, who played Black Stash, um, an unbelievable comic timing, very, very funny. Molly Astor played Katrina Michaels, uh, and she's another one that you need to look out for. And Mrs. Brumbreak, Bumbreak was played by uh, Philip Taratula, and uh, Philip was outstanding as well. So if you do get a chance, get down uh, to the Babylon Village and uh, check out this production, Peter and the Starcatcher, and it's playing through October 21st. Amazing how the, amazing how this play has had such uh, staying power. I mean, I even saw it in North Dakota at a community theater. So uh, it's really done extraordinarily well. Well, you know, uh, I was looking up the history of it. It played on Broadway for uh, about uh, nine months or so. Uh, mm-hmm. Won a handful of Tony Awards. Uh, and as I went back and glanced at it, let me talk about this for a second. Uh, Christian Borle. Uh, yes. Celia Keenan Bolger, Roger Rees, Alex Timbers. Uh, I mean, uh, Rick Elise, uh, Jersey Boys, uh, uh, <laughs> wrote the lyrics. Uh, Wayne Barker wrote the um, uh, wrote music, um, and so uh, and it was a best play nominee. It didn't win that year. I wonder what won that year. Do you know against that 2012? No recall offhand. So uh, yeah. I I think this is uh, it, it was a bold choice for Evan Pappas to pick Peter and the Starcatcher for a brand new theater, but this really paid off. In the uh, news this week, it seems that there was only one story, and what a story! So uh, we talk about the passing of Marin Maisie, um, dying at such a young age of fifty-seven, and the impact that she's had on the Broadway community. Uh, Michael, why don't you start us off here? Yes, the theater community is bereft with the loss of the beloved Marin Maisie, uh, a superb talent and and a wonderful woman, beloved apparently by everyone in the business. Seems like she knew and worked with everyone, and they all really loved her. She received several Tony Award and Drama Desk nominations throughout her career for such shows as Passion, Ragtime, and Kiss Me Kate. Uh, She uh, got a Drama Desk Award for the off-Broadway version of Carrie. And she was a 2017 Theater Hall of Fame inductee. In addition to all of the shows in which Marin originated roles, she did so much work as far as replacing other actors in, in some really wonderful productions and giving marvelous performances in them uh, into the woods man of la mancha spam a lot next to normal and the king and i uh she and her husband jason Danieli went into next to normal together as the married couple in that and i remember saying at the time that it was hers was one of the most moving performances i've ever seen jason was also wonderful in it but the, the that role that central female role is uh, is i guess the heart of that piece and marin was magnificent and then also i i've said on several occasions i that the king and i is really seriously in I guess, like one of my top three musicals of all time. So to see Marin 
give such a perfect performance of Anna Leon Owens in that show was a definite, absolute highlight of my enthi- entire theater-going life. I will never forget that. Um, other uh, credits Marin had that I uh, that I had to be reminded about because again she did so much, but she was La Lume in Kismet at Encores, and she was a hysterically funny golden voiced Lily Garland in on the 20th century uh, for an actors fund benefit actors fund benefit concert that was done several years ago. Um, You can find uh, evidence of a lot of this material on YouTube. Uh, And we thought we would play for this year's, for this week's musical moment. Uh, it, It had to be, something by Marin and I thought we would choose a little bit of her uh, opening number from when she played the leader in the encore production of Kander and Ebb's Sorba. Uh, I, it was really quite something. I interviewed Marin just before that show opened. Uh, apparently she received her cancer diagnosis on the day of the opening. I was talking to her just a couple of days before that, and though I guess she didn't exactly know yet, she must have been in the middle of testing and known there was something up. Uh, something was definitely up. Um, and there we are talking about the first line she has to sing in the show, which is, life is what you do while you're waiting to die. Um, uh, later, um, while undergoing her cancer treatment, Marin talked about what it took for her to go out and sing that every night in that show. Um, so that will always be uh, one of the first things I think of when I think of Marin Maisie, who left us far too soon and is one of our most beloved musical theater and theater artists. Certainly um, a great, great loss to the theater. Oh, Peter, you have any words to say? Sure. Um, a number of things come to mind. Uh, of course, Michael has covered it all very well in terms of the uh, performances that she gave and uh, the unforgettable performances she certainly gave. Um, I, ha- I have some thoughts about um, talking to her and Jason once uh, about how they met. They met in a play. It was Greek play uh, a Greek classic I don't remember what it was but the point is she said she knew that he was the guy for her and so every night when they had a scene when they kissed she would always kiss him more fervently at each performance uh, (laughs) so so that he would get the message that she was really interested in him and eventually he did catch on Uh, The last time I saw her was actually in the audience at at the 92nd Street Y. They actually had her stand and take a bow. And she did. She was um, very, very animated. She gave a big wave to the crowd, a big smile to the crowd. And yet she was wearing a turban. And so that wasn't a good sign. So um, we knew that um, whatever was wrong had not been um, arrested. So that was a problem. But what I also remember... I ran into her um, in 2001. Now, what had happened was, of course, on September 11th, we know it happened, and Broadway shows were canceled that night, that Tuesday, and they were canceled the following day, both Wednesday performances, and they weren't starting until Thursday. And I ran into her on the street. Now, she was no longer in Kiss Me, Kate, though the show was still running. And she said, wow, you know, I... (laughs) 
I don't know how I'd feel about going back to work tonight uh, if, 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 if I were in a show because, you know, um, is it too soon or do we need it now? I just don't know what's the case. The irony is that was September 13th. So little did she know that 17 years to the day would be the day of her death. So it's a very sad thing. Uh, wow. when I think that. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, we will miss her. We have missed her because really suddenly it's been more than two years that we saw her on Broadway because The King and I closed in June of 2016. So, so yes, um, I, I'm, I'm glad we had her for as, as long as we did. Um, I'm glad that she got to play so many classic roles. Um, so many people have said that um, her galvanizing rendition of Back to Before mm. in Ragtime has never been equaled. Um, and... Um, whether it has or it hasn't, we certainly are grateful for her for singing that song and bringing that anthem to a lot of people who needed to hear it. So rest in peace, Marin. Yes. Yeah. Um, Back to Before is a song that so many people have turned to throughout the years uh, to provide us uh, some hope and emotional support um, whenever anybody meets the challenges in their life. Uh, and I don't know anybody who's ever been able to convey it like she has. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, a friend invited me to, Catherine Skidmore, a friend of mine, invited me to the opening night of uh, Ragtime on Broadway. Wow. And so uh, uh, that's, it, it, it. it's a moment in my life that, you know, uh, I, you it, it will always be with me. It was just, it was such a, an electric night to start with and to, to have uh, the ability to see uh, Marin perform, perform that song a number of times. I was a big fan of the Ragtime on Broadway, uh, Garth Drabinsky production. Um, and uh, so I got to see it a number of times. So it's, uh, it's something that has shaped my life. And uh, in essence, um, uh, I just I just can't believe that this has happened and transpired, but uh, I think both of you have summed it up really well. All right, so before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. And there's a subscribe link that each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in either one of those ways. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Apple Podcasts plays us, Stutcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get all of Broadway Radio's uh, shows. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, uh, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today and... uh, Marin singing Life Is from Zorba is uh, on the, the uh, show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. Uh, so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Sure. The question was, what Rodgers and Hammerstein song is unadulterated rock and roll? In fact, the word rock and the word roll are even used in the song. Name the show, too. Well, the answer is in Flower Drum Song. Rogers and Hammerstein's take on Chinese tradition versus Americanization, when the young and very Americanized Wang San meets the just as Americanized Linda Lowe, he asks her if she knows the song You Be the Rock 
I'll be the roll. To which she says, sure, you'll be the rock, I'll be the roll. You'll be the soup, I'll be the bowl. You'll be the furnace, I'll be the coal. Rock, rock, rock. <laughs> Ham- Hammerstein was obviously mocking the type of lyric that was then invading the airwaves and the quality of which you can find in many of today's Broadway musicals. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a trick question, but I did figure that it wouldn't be hard to find the show because Flower Drum Song and the 62 film of State Fair were the only r properties set in the rock era. So that narrowed it down quite a bit. I mean, you know, it couldn't be Carousel, it couldn't be Oklahoma, it couldn't be King and I. So Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Steve Bell. And that was it. Just two answers. This week's question, the composer lyricist of a musical that would win him a best score Tony in that show's opening number actually quoted three words, six notes, but three words, a song that he had written before. Who is he? What's the show, the song and the song within the song? All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Life is what you do while you're waiting to die. Life is how the time When you grin and breathe. Having if you're lucky, wanting if you're not, looking for the ruby underneath the rut, hungry for the peel off in someone else's pot, but that's the only choice.